Chapter Thirty of A Son at the Front. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Mary Lou in New York City. A Son at the Front by Edith Wharton. Chapter Thirty. These thoughts continued to weigh on Campton. To shake them off, he decided, with one of his habitual quick jerks of resolution, to get back to work. He knew that George would approve, and would perhaps be oftener with him, if he had something interesting on his easel. Sir Cyril Jorgenstein had suggested that he would like to have his portrait finished, with the Legion of Honor added to his lapel, no doubt. And Harvey Mayhew, rosy and embarrassed, had dropped in to hint that if campton could find time to do a charcoal head oh just one of those brilliant sketches of his of the young musical genius in whose career their friend madame de dolmetsch was so much interested but campton had cut them both short he was not working he had no plans for the present and in truth he had not thought even of attempting a portrait of george the impulse had come to him once as he sat by the boy's bed but the face was too incomprehensible he should have to learn and unlearn too many things first at last one day it occurred to him to make a study of madame lebel he saw her in charcoal her simple unquestioning anguish had turned her old face to sculpture campton set his canvas on the easel and started to shout for her down the stairs but as he opened the door he found himself face to face with Mrs. Talcott. Oh, she began at once, in her breathless way, you're here. The old woman downstairs wasn't sure, and I couldn't leave all the money with her, could I? Money? What money? he echoed. She was very simply dressed, and a veil drooping low from her hat-brim gave to her over-eager face a shadowy youthful calm. I may come in? she questioned almost timidly and as campton let her pass she added the money from the concert of course heaps and heaps of it i'd no idea we'd made so much and i wanted to give it to you myself she shook a bulging bag out of her immense muff while campton continued to stare at her i didn't know you went out so early he finally stammered trying to push a newspaper over the disordered remains of his breakfast she lifted interrogative eyebrows that means that i'm in the way no but why did you bring the money here she looked surprised why not aren't you the head the real head of the committee and wasn't the concert given in my house her eyes rested on him with renewed timidity is it disagreeable to you to see me she asked disagreeable my dear child no he paused increasingly embarrassed what did she expect him to say next to thank her for having sent him the orderly's letter it seemed to him impossible to plunge into the subject uninvited surely it was for her to give him the opening if she wished to well no she broke out i've never once pretended to you have i the money's a pretext i wanted to see you here alone with no one to disturb us Campton felt a confused stirring of relief and fear. 
all his old dread of scenes commotions disturbing emergencies of anything that should upset his perpetually vibrating balance was blent with the passionate desire to hear what his visitor had to say you it was good of you to think of sending us that letter he faltered she frowned in her anxious way and looked away from him afterward i was afraid you'd be angry angry how could i he groped for a word surprised yes i knew nothing nothing about you and not even that it was i who bought the sketch of him the one that leonce black sold for you last year the blood rushed to campton's face suddenly he felt himself trapped and betrayed you you you've got that sketch the thought was somehow intolerable to him ah now you are angry mrs talcott murmured no no but i never imagined i know that was what frightened me you're suspecting nothing she glanced about her dropped to a corner of the divan and tossed off her hat with the old familiar gesture oh can i talk to you she pleaded campton nodded i wish you'd light your pipe then and sit down too he reached for his pipe struck a match and slowly seated himself you always smoke a pipe in the morning don't you he told me that she went on then she paused again and drew a long anxious breath oh he's so changed i feel as if i didn't know him any longer do you campton looked at her with deepening wonder this was more surprising than discovering her to be the possessor of the picture he had not expected deep to call unto deep in their talk i'm not sure that i do he confessed her fidgeting eyes deepened and grew quieter your saying so makes me feel less lonely she sighed half to herself but has he told you nothing since he came back really nothing nothing after all how could he i mean without indiscretion indiscretion oh she shrugged the word away with half a smile as though such considerations belonged to a prehistoric order of things then he hasn't even told you that he wants me to get a divorce a divorce campton exclaimed he sat staring at her as if the weight of his gaze might pin her down keep her from fluttering away and breaking up into luminous splinters george wanted her to get a divorce wanted therefore to marry her his passion went as deep for her as that too deep campton conjectured for the poor little ephemeral creature who struck him as wriggling on it like a butterfly impaled please tell me he said at length and suddenly in short inconsequent sentences the confession poured from her george it seemed during the previous winter in new york when they had seen so much of each other had been deeply attracted had wanted everything and at once and there had been moments of tension and estrangement when she had been held back by scruples she confessed she no longer understood inherited prejudices she supposed and when her reluctance must have made her appear to be trifling whereas really it was just that she couldn't couldn't so they had gone on for several months with the usual emotional ups and downs till he had left for europe to join his father and when they had parted she had given him the half promise that if they met abroad during the summer she would perhaps after all then came the war george had been with her during those few last hours in paris and had dined with her and her husband had campton forgiven her 
the night before he was mobilized. And then, when he was gone, she had understood that only timidity, vanity, the phantom barriers of old terrors and traditions had prevented her being to him all that he wanted. She broke off abruptly, put in a few conventional words about an ill-assorted marriage, and never having been really understood, and then, as if guessing that she was on the wrong tack, jumped up, walked to the other end of the studio, and turned back to Campton with the tears running down her ravaged face. "'And now, and now he says he won't have me,' she lamented. "'Won't have you? But you tell me he wants you to be divorced.' She nodded, wiped away the tears, and in so doing stole an unconscious glance at the mirror above the divan. Then, seeing that the glance was detected, she burst into a sort of sobbing laugh. "'My nose gets so dreadfully red when I cry,' she stammered. Campton took no notice, and she went on. "'A divorce, yes, and unless I do, unless I agree to marry him, we're never to be anything but friends.' "'That's what he says?' "'Yes. Oh, we've been all in and out of it a hundred times.' She pulled out a gold mesh bag and furtively restored her complexion, as Mrs. Brandt had once done in the same place. Campton sat still, considering. He had let his pipe go out. Nothing could have been farther from the revelation he had expected, and his own perplexity was hardly less great than his visitor's. Certainly it was not the way in which young men had behaved in his day, nor, evidently, had it been George's before the war. Finally he made up his mind to put the question. And Talcott? She burst out at once. Ah, uh, that's what I say. It's not so simple. What isn't? Breaking up all one's life. She paused with a deepening embarrassment. Of course, Roger has made me utterly miserable. But then, I know he hasn't really meant to. Have you told George that? Yes, but he says we must first of all be above board. He says he sees everything differently now. That's what I mean when I say that I don't understand him. He says love's not the same kind of feeling to him that it was. There's something of Meredith's that he quotes. I wish I could remember it. Something about a mortal lease. Good Lord, Campton groaned, not so much at the hopelessness of the case as at the hopelessness of quoting Meredith to her. After a while he said abruptly, "'You must forgive my asking, but things change sometimes. They change imperceptibly. Do you think he's as much in love with you as ever?' He had been half afraid of offending her, but she appeared to consider the question impartially and without a shadow of resentment. Sometimes I think more, because in the beginning it wasn't meant to last, and now, if he wants to marry me, oh, I wish I knew what to do. Campton continued to ponder. There's one more question since we're talking frankly. What does Talcott know of all this? She looked frightened. Oh, nothing, nothing. "'And you've no idea how he would take it?' She examined the question with tortured eyebrows, and at length, to Campton's astonishment, brought out, "'Magnificently!' "'He'd be generous, you mean? But it would go hard with him?' "'Oh, dreadfully, dreadfully!' She seemed to need the assurance to restore her shaken self-approval. Campton rose with a movement of pity, and laid his hand on her shoulder. My dear child, if your husband cares for you, give up my son. 
her face fell and she drew back oh but you don't understand not in the least it's not possible it's not moral you know i'm all for the new morality first of all we must be true to self she paused and then broke out you tell me to give him up because you think he's tired of me but he's not i know he's not it's his new ideas that you don't understand any more than i do it's the war that has changed him he says he wants only things that last that are permanent things that hold a man fast that sometimes he feels as if he were being swept away on a flood and were trying to catch at things at anything as he's rushed along under the waves he says he wants quiet monotony to be sure the same things will happen every day when we go out together he sometimes stands for a quarter of an hour and stares at the same building or at the seine under the bridges but he's happy i'm sure i've never seen him happier only it's in a way i can't make out oh my dear if it comes to that i'm not sure that i can not sure enough to help you i'm afraid she looked at him disappointed you won't speak to him then not unless he speaks to me ah he frightens you just as he does me she pulled her hat down on her troubled brow gathered up her furs and took another sidelong peep at the glass then she turned toward the door on the threshold she paused and looked back at campton don't you see she cried that if i were to give george up he'd get himself sent straight back to the front campton's heart gave an angry leap for a second he felt the impulse to strike her to catch her by the shoulders and bundle her out of the room with a great effort he controlled himself and opened the door you don't understand you don't understand she called back to him once again from the landing madge talcott had asked him to speak to his son he had refused and she had retaliated by planting that poisoned shaft in him but what had retaliation to do with it she had probably spoken the simple truth and with the natural desire to enlighten him if george wanted to marry her it must be since human nature though it might change its vocabulary kept its instincts it must be that he was very much in love and in that case her refusal would in truth go hard with him and it would be natural that he should try to get himself sent away from paris from paris yes but not necessarily to the front after such wounds and such honors he had only to choose a staff appointment could easily be got or no doubt with his two languages he might if he preferred have himself sent on a military mission to america with all this propaganda talk wasn't he the very type of officer they wanted for the neutral countries it was campton's dearest wish that george should stay where he was he knew his peace of mind would vanish the moment his son was out of sight but he suspected that george would soon weary of staff work or of any form of soldiering at the rear and try for the trenches if he left paris whereas in paris madge talcott might hold him as she had meant his father to see the first thing then was to make sure of a job at the war office campton turned and tossed like a sick man on the hard bed of his problem to plan to scheme to plot and circumvent nothing was more hateful to him there was nothing in which he was less skilled if only he dared to consult adele anthony but adele was still incorrigibly warlike 
and her having been in George's secret while his parents were excluded from it left no doubt as to the side on which her influence would bear. She loved the boy, Campton sometimes thought, even more passionately than his mother did. But how did the old song go? She loved honor, or her queer conception of it, more. Ponder as he would, he could not picture her, even now, lifting a finger to keep George back. Campton struggled all the morning with these questions. After lunch, he pocketed Mrs. Talcott's money-bag and carried it to the Palais Royal, where he discovered Harvey Mayhew in confabulation with Madame Bossite, who still trailed her ineffectual beauty about the office. The painter thought he detected a faint embarrassment in the glance with which they both greeted him. "'Hello, Campton. Looking for our good friend Boylston. He's off duty this afternoon, Madame Bossite tells me. As he is pretty often in these days, I've noticed.' Mr. Mayhew sardonically added, "'In fact, the office has rather been left to run itself lately, eh? Of course, our good Miss Anthony is absorbed with her refugees, gives us but a divided allegiance, and Boylston—well, young men, young men, of course it's been a weary pull for him.' "'By the way, my dear fellow,' Mr. Mayhew continued, as Campton appeared about to turn away, "'I called at Mrs. Talcott's just now to ask for the money from the concert. A good round sum, I hear it is, and she'd told me she'd given it to you. Have you brought it with you? If so, Madame Bossite here would take charge of it.' Madame Bossite turned her great resigned eyes on the painter. "'Mr. Campton knows I'm very careful. I will lock it up till his friends return.' Now that Mr. Boylston is so much away, I very often have such responsibilities. Campton's eyes returned her glance, but he did not waver. Thanks so much, but as the sum is rather large, it seems to me the bank's the proper place. Will you please tell Boylston I've deposited it? Mr. Mayhew's benevolent pink turned to an angry red. For a moment Campton thought he was about to say something foolish, but he merely bent his head stiffly muttered a vague phrase about irregular proceedings, and returned to his seat by Madame Bossit's desk. As for Campton, his words had decided his course. He would take the money at once to Bullard and Brant's and seize the occasion to see the banker. Mr. Brant was the only person with whom, at this particular juncture, he cared to talk of George. End of chapter 30